Oh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Breakdown, the Rebel News daily show wherein we analyze the day's proceedings at the Public Order Emergency Inquiry. I'll get to exactly what that is in a second, but I want to say hello to my friend Celine, who looks great in orange, by the way. And Celine has been in the Public Order Inquiry Commission hearing room since very nearly the beginning. What was it like in there today? We had some more um, high-profile cabinet ministers doing their best to cover their butts. It was um, it was interesting because it was a different tone in the room per the minister actually giving their testimony. So there was actually a lot of people left during Lametti's testimony um, because he was just so darn rude and uh, blatant in the fact that he knew that he could say anything that he wanted or withhold anything that he wanted. And then the rest of it was pretty neutral. And then there was almost no one there for Omar's testimony. Omar, uh, I'll... Al Algabra. Yeah, that's how you say it. Algabra, <laughs> Algebra depends on who you are yeah, and whether exactly. or not you care if you're saying his name properly, because I don't. Mm -hmm. um, but um, <laughs> I should tell everybody what we're doing here. So as I said, this is Breakdown. It's the Rebel News daily analysis of the comings and goings of the Public Order Emergency Inquiring. The Public Order Emergency Inquiry is taking place in Ottawa right now, where our team is at the Airbnb satellite studio just up the road from the commission hearings. You can see and support all of their work at truckercommission.com. The commission is the fail-safe built into the Emergencies Act law to prevent, let's say, an egomaniacal yet fragile buffoon from invoking the Emergencies Act to dissipate peaceful anti-regime protests happening on the streets of their nation's capital, which is exactly what Justin Trudeau did. Uh, a convoy of truckers and their allies. It was, truckers were the catalyst and the cross-border vaccine mandate imposed upon them by the aforementioned Omar El-Jabra, who looks particularly like a goblin uh, on the thumbnail for this video. And I <laughs> don't know if that's on purpose or if it's just his natural state, um, but, uh, that was the catalyst for the protests. And then um, it was just people from all walks of life who were really just mm -hmm. sick of two years of nonsensical, unscientific, unfair intrusions upon their lives and their behaviors and their jobs and their families by every single level of government from municipal upwards. And I would say e even lower school board to federal. Um, it was everything. And it was the thing where people said, you know what? Me too. I've had enough. We went to the nation's capital for almost four weeks. And mm -hmm. about two and a half weeks in, Justin Trudeau dropped the hammer on them. However, as we heard today, um, they wanted to do it after about I, I, 30 hours, maybe. <laughs> we saw David Lametti, our justice minister, as you mentioned. He's the justice minister and the, and the attorney general which means that he's the government's lawyer, which means yeah. when he doesn't want to answer something, he can claim attorney-client privilege, which he did multiple times today. He can also claim cabinet privilege um, because talks between cabinet ministers are protected by secrecy. They get cabinet confidentiality. So basically he could answer whatever he felt like today or not. And we saw text messages between uh, David Lametti and I think it was a senior bureaucrat maybe mm -hmm. his uh, ADM, maybe his chief of staff, I forget, doesn't matter. Because the point is David Lametti on January 30th, the truckers really arrived like 28th, 29th. Mm -hmm. And by the 30th, he's like, we're going to invoke the EA. 
Yeah. It was predetermined. I mean, it's, it's, um, I've been screaming it from the beginning. It's a setup. This is, you know, again, we saw all through all the testimonies from all the people. We started with police officials. We even had citizens testifying, citizens of Ottawa who, you know, tried to, to feel righteous and throwing eggs, pelting trucks with the uh, eggs, like their children, they're 12 years old. Then they want to complain about micro, um, microaggressions. That one's funny, but we've seen that it's just been one big finger pointing in one direction. And now we've arrived. It's all the liberal uh, ministers in Trudeau's cabinet. And they're the ones that, uh, that invoke this, that made this happen, that have been trying to cover it up by pointing fingers back at everybody else. And, uh, Marco Mendicino is a really good example of that because he publicly declared how many times that it was the OPS and the OPP and other officers or um, just police in general that actually called for the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And um, that was never the case. And that's come out since. And it's it's been the truth. And he testified so hard. Um, still, he's going down with the lie. Um, just kind of watching that shit burn as it, as it passes by. It's great. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. They said, you know, the police asked them to, but nobody ever needed to ask them to because this is no. a predetermined outcome that they were willing to do from the very beginning. Now, we have a big lineup of guests today. I think we've got Alan Honor from the Democracy Fund, who is sitting, mm -hmm. I think, directly adjacent to you in the Airbnb studio. Hey, Alan, <laughs> good to see you. You were questioning the uh, cabinet ministers today. Why don't we go to Alan's clip, and then let's talk to Alan. Celine's not, or sorry, she's not ready. <laughs> um, you know, let's, Alan, you had well, some text messages. No, are we good? Okay, Alan, you had some text messages that um, came out in your examination. Uh, why don't you tell us what those were all about? Right, so so Sheila, in, in my examination of David Lametti, what I wanted to explore was when... Uh, when cabinet and the prime minister uh, decided to invoke the emergencies act and we we know under the emergencies act that they have to consult with the provinces and and so what we did is we took them through a timeline we saw an email and that email was from the um the prime minister's office and it was suggesting that um, there was going to be a press uh, a press conference on February the 14th and that it was to be kept quiet until after the first minister's meeting. So we just wanted to explore that and see why it was uh, supposed to be quiet and whether or not the prime minister and cabinet had made up their minds beforehand. And one of the text messages that we brought uh, the minister of justice to was a text message from the 13th in which he was having a conversation with an MP, I believe, um, uh, in, in, in this sort of Ottawa area, and they, and, and that text message concluded with a summary of a conversation in which they said that there's a consensus to invoke the Emergencies Act. Now, in fairness, and so it didn't uh, matter what the first minister said. Well, that was theater. Well, you know, I, 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 I can't say for sure, right? <laughs> But we, we just wanted to put it to him and explore it. And so, you know, there's there's been evidence both ways, but the, part of the process or, or part of the purpose of the inquiry is to test this evidence. And we also have, I think, a, a second clip of you, Alan, 
um, questioning Minister Justice Lametti about text messages and the lengths at which the government of Canada would go to keep the Emergencies Act in effect. And it seemed as though they were willing to keep it in effect insofar as the NDP and the senators would support them and they would, you know, sort of repeal the use of the Emergencies Act when they felt as though they were losing the support of the NDP. So it really wasn't about public safety at all. It was about how much they could do and how long they could do it for until it became uh, a political hot potato for them. Right. So, Sheila, so what we saw was that there was a text message between uh, MP Greg Fergus and uh, the Minister of Justice on February 23rd. That was the date that the Emergencies Act was uh, revoked. And it was that, and and the message suggested that perhaps um, the federal government wanted to stay ahead of the NDP, and they wanted to revoke the act before um, uh, before the Senate could vote on it. And there was, of course, there was some contrary evidence later on in the uh, proceeding, but the question still remains: if the NDP uh, withdrawing their support wasn't a concern, then why bring it up? And if the Senate voting against the Emergencies Act wasn't a concern, then why talk about that in a text message? Uh, Olivia, did you find that clip? This is another email exchange between you and Greg Fergus. And he says, on February 23rd, I am glad we ended the EA but it would have been more appropriate if we waited until Friday, 44 hours after the vote seems unseemly. And your response is, no, we needed to stay ahead of the NDP and the senators were saying that they would vote against based on their view that there was no longer an emergency. That is your text message with Mr. Fergus. It is indeed, and, I, and although we did have the votes, and although the vast majority of senators understood that they were being asked to vote on the Emergencies Act at the time at which it was invoked, there were a number that didn't understand that. We had said from the beginning, sir, that we would not keep the act a minute longer than, than we needed to. It's something we said to the NDP, and it's something that we said to senators. And I'm being completely consistent here to say that we needed to be ahead of that in terms of keeping our promise in order to, uh, in order to not keep the act in place a minute longer than necessary, and that's precisely what we did. And this is my last question. I put it to you that this text message shows that, in fact, you would have kept the Emergencies Act in place for longer had it not been for the fact that you were concerned that the NDP would withdraw their, their support and that the senators would vote against? I reject that premise. There are, other, there are other text messages that you will see where we have uh, predicted that we had sufficient votes. We'll leave that to submissions. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you. Sure sounds to me like he would only keep the Emergencies Act in place as long as he could get away with it, <laughs> politically. Hmm. Well, we'll never know what, what would have happened with that Senate vote, will we? No. We won't, but I think he does. I think David Lometti does. Um, now, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the other questions, I guess, from the freedom side. Um, Olivia, you want to queue up clip four? 
David Lametti refuses to answer Freedom Convoy lawyer Brandon Miller's question about the broader scope of Section 2 of the Emergencies Act. Lametti kept citing hiding behind solicitor client privilege. But this is one thing that's really come out in the final days of the commission. I think it was probably universally understood at the beginning of this that to invoke the Emergencies Act, the convoy had to reach the bar of Section 2 of the CSIS Act, one of those four provisions there. But then all of a sudden, when police forces kept saying, no, it didn't meet that, it didn't meet that, um, then we've said, okay, well, not we, but the Liberals, it is their contention that it's actually much broader under the Emergencies Act. And really, this is in the, only the final weeks of this thing. Have we even ever heard that before it was, yes, definitely police forces act us, asked us repeatedly that they needed these extra tools. And only when police forces started testifying that they didn't, they sort of changed whatever the argument would be. And they said, well, the, actually, it's that's not even the requirement under the Emergencies Act. Am I reading that right? I'm not a lawyer, but you are. Well, you know, Sheila, I think you've, you've sort of zeroed in on what has been a, a major frustration for many people who are watching the emergencies, um, the, the commission, as well as some of the lawyers, because what we really want to get to is, is this, this question of, well, why did you invoke the act? And to, to know that, we have to know a little bit more about what was discussed in cabinet. And we, we really need to know what advice David Lametti gave to the other cabinet members, but as you saw, that, informa that information is privileged. So there's solicitor-client privilege, that's in play, and there's cabinet privilege, and that's in play as well. So there's, there's a double layer of privilege here, and in some ways, at some times, there might also be a third level of privilege, national security confidentiality. So there could be potentially three levels of privilege, uh, but, but it is frustrating. And, you know, when I think of it, I think... It, it makes perfect sense that the government would not want to waive national security privilege. There's a very good reason why that exists. And generally, there's also a very good reason why cabinet privilege exists. Um, and, and also for solicitor-client privilege, but solicitor-client privilege can be waived, right? And we saw at the beginning of this, uh, uh, of this inquiry that the government was uh, congratulating itself on its historical waiver of uh, privilege, but when it really gets uh, to the meat of things, we don't know what happened. No, and and we can piece together the timeline mm -hmm. of some of the conversations, but and you can infer certain things from the timeline and the things that happened after certain conversations. For example, we had the director of CSIS, David Vigneault, say repeatedly, this convoy did not rise to meet Section 2 of the CSIS Act. He, it's in briefing notes, I believe, to Cabinet on February 10th, where he's saying, no plots of sedition, no, no, nothing. This is not a national security threat. It's a little inconvenient, but, but that's about it. And then between the 10th and the 13th, he meets with David Lametti's uh, Justice Ministry and for outside legal advice, but that hardly seems outside to me when you're meeting with the justice ministry that wants to invoke the emergencies act. And, and we've seen the government say that from as early as I think January 30th, David Lametti did, but you know, so he meets with the justice ministry 
And then by the 13th, his opinion on what is the scope and scale of the Emergencies Act and what constitutes a security threat there has changed from what everybody knew was in the act before. And then he advises Justin Trudeau, yeah, you know what, go ahead and vote the act. So uh, again, I'm curious, what advice is the justice ministry giving out? And, and they're, they, they won't really reveal any of that. They're saying it's, you know, as you say, solicitor client privilege, but that's the crux of all of this is what advice did you give to these people that led them to believe that they didn't need to meet section two? And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Sheila. And, and we, we're just going to have to resolve this inquiry without knowing that advice. We've heard some evidence, you know, from, from different people. We've heard evidence from the clerk of the Privy Council. We've heard evidence from the uh, National Security Intelligence Advisor. And we know what their interpretation of the test was. And, you know, I think a lot of us were quite puzzled when we heard that because it, it, it doesn't seem... Uh, it doesn't seem to accord with the obvious reading of the legislation, and this might have to come down uh, to legal submissions. And in in some way, I think you know. You know, I'm just in a way I'm thinking out loud here. Um, if the government is not going to say what advice uh, was given, then they will have to live with that in their legal submission in in their final submissions as well. Yeah. And, yeah, and so it'll, it, it'll, it, it'll come down to to a legal argument. And that, you know, that's hardly the point of all of this, because this is a this is a public inquiry. Mm. <laughs> so, so, so the public has some interest in finding out these things for themselves. Um, let's go to clip four so we can see this invoking of solicitor client privilege in the face of prickly questions mm. in real time narrow it down. Um, was there any such document that you reviewed in preparing for your testimony here today that existed prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act that it was discussed, that isn't subject to sister-client privilege, that it was discussed that uh, there was a broader scope of Section 2 as it applied in the Evidence Act? Once again, that's, that's a question that's asking me uh, to effectively divulge legal arguments. Um, I, I remind my, my learned friend that it is very odd to put a lawyer on the stand. I'm really here as a, a cabinet minister in order to speak to facts. I know. Uh, and it is, it is uh, to some extent uh, an obligation for me to try to answer questions as best I can. But right. you're asking me to answer questions as a lawyer, and it is it would be remarkable to put a lawyer up on the stand in the middle well, of the Well, I, I understand, so. sir. And so... Again, I just I would like the question answered. Did did you see any documents that talked about this interpretation that you're discussing uh, that existed prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act? Again, I'm going to rely on on solicitor client privilege there. I don't know. Keith Wilson testified. He's a lawyer. <laughs> That's right. So so Sheila, you know, I think. Uh, you know, we, we do have to be a little bit fair to uh, the Minister of Justice here. If sure. something is really privileged, then he can't talk about it. 
I mean, it's not up to him to waive it. But I, I'd like to return to something you said earlier, because you said, well, the, the point of this commission is to get to the, the truth of what happened. And, and, you know, this this just goes back to the nature of privilege. And privilege always exists in intention with finding the truth, right? And it's usually because there's some type of relationship that you want to protect. That relationship might be the relationship between a, a lawyer and a client, or it, it might be the relationship between, say, um, uh, a, a church member and a priest, right? Or it might be the relationship between a husband and wife. And there, there are all sorts of privileges, but they... They, they, they sort of, in some way, they, they frustrate the truth or the search for the truth, but that's part of our legal system. Now, you know, I think we mentioned this before, oftentimes privilege can be waived. And in this case, uh, solicitor-client privilege was not waived. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's very <laughs> frustrating. It's very frustrating as a member of the public. I understand why it exists. Um, but Justin Trudeau assured me way back in 2015, this is the most open and transparent government that I would ever be exposed to in my entire lifetime. And I'm still waiting to see it. I think we'll all have to make up our minds about that one. Um, what I, I want to ask you while I have you and before I let you go, cause I know we've got another lawyer standing there <laughs> waiting to come on the show. What do you expect from the rest of the week? Well, we have th three more witnesses. Uh, tomorrow we'll hear from uh, Christia Freeland. Um, we'll hear from a panel uh, from the Prime Minister's office. And then we'll finally hear uh, from the Prime Minister. I don't think we're going to hear anything new. I think we're going to hear, um, you know, more of the same testimony. Uh, but there might be a few surprises uh, here and there. There will be some contesting of their evidence um you know to some extent i'm a little constrained here shelia because um i know we we, I know. we, we, we <laughs> see things before the public sees them but we can't talk about right. them and of course we have questions that we plan to ask um but we won't put those on uh we won't put those on live television or on live stream uh, the day before uh we're asking those right. questions <laughs> yeah you don't want to give the bad guys <laughs> any heads up but also i'm not convinced that you're getting those getting to see things well in advance of the public based on how the federal government is releasing documents to you guys as the witnesses are testifying. Some that has come out in the public order uh, emergency inquiry. You're right. So there, there's been some, uh, some discussion already about how documents uh, are released late. And this is part of the, um, it, it can be difficult to keep up when that happens. Absolutely. Oh, you're so diplomatic, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show and thanks so much for your hard work at the commission. Um, let's cut to an ad, Olivia, so that we can let Alan leave the set without a tangle of headphones and, and, and disarray. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> Freedom in 2022 is not sitting idly by while health diktats with no skin in the game make up all the rules. If you're like me, I want to play an active role in upholding civil liberties and freedoms for all Canadians, for our children, and eventually our grandchildren. Then come out to our Rebel Live event and get to know us in person. We'll hearing from some of the most influential leaders in the freedom movement. 
We have events in Toronto on November the 19th and in Calgary on Saturday, November 26th. Tickets are on sale now at rebelnewslive.com. Come out, have lunch, get some Rebel swag, meet the Rebels and more. You don't want to miss this event. Check it out, rebelnewslive.com. So joining me now is Hatim Kerr. I hope I said that right, Hatim, from the Justice Center for Constitutional... Okay, perfect. From the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm a big fan. I sat behind you for two days. Um, I I never actually got a chance to talk to you, but I'm a fan of some of your other work on freedom causes here in Alberta. And you are doing what I would describe as a bit of the Lord's work there because these tow truck drivers who were compelled against their will to be tools of the state. Um, that really irks me. I, I just despise it. I loathe so much the idea of the state commandeering anybody's personal property and their business, but especially when it violates their conscience. And as we know out here in Alberta, they, they couldn't get a tow truck or energy company to come help them within, I think, the entire northwestern part of the continent. And, and so uh, the, the Alberta government had to buy their own towing equipment, which they never really had to ultimately lose use. But you were really hammering the government today on um, the use of the Emergencies Act to force tow truck operators to violate their conscience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And I know we've got a couple of clips that we'll go to after. Yeah, so... Uh... I mean, there's so many, you know, rights violations and freedom issues surrounding this whole thing. But one of the ones that are probably most centrally affected are the tow truck drivers. They were forced to physically do something and assist uh, with perhaps something that they didn't want to do. Well, I mean, if they had to be forced, they didn't want to do it. But then the specifically why certainly some of them supported the uh, the freedom convoy protest. Minister Al-Gabra admitted as much. So the government had to use emergency powers in order to compel them to do that. So the, the purpose of my cross-examination was to put that to Minister Al-Gabra, uh, though when asked, he uh, he resisted the, the question, let's say. He, uh, he, he, he kind of resorted to the idea that, well, I, I don't know how the police used the power. Hopefully they used it on people who wanted to help anyways. If that's the case, you don't need a power to make them do it. Right. That was the part that I thought was uh, that was... Um kind of ridiculous was he said i don't really know how the selection process works but i sort of kind of hope they selected the ones that wanted to do it well then why did you invoke the act to compel tow truck drivers if you just knew that there were ones that wanted to do it he he just sort of painted himself into a this circular logic um and also if you don't know how police are going to use that power appropriately maybe you shouldn't be giving it to them that's exactly right. And we saw a similar <laughs> dynamic with the use of the uh, the economic measures to freeze bank accounts, where the Finance Canada creates the power, or at least is responsible for the, the discussions that led to its creation. Then the power gets handed out to the police. And then when they get pressed on the decision that they made to, to create the powers in the first place, they say, hey, we weren't responsible for how it was used. We hope that they just used it responsibly and that they didn't use the, the powers that we gave them if it was, uh, if it was going to result in rights violations. Yeah. The whole- yeah, we hope they didn't use the power to do whatever they want to do whatever they wanted. <laughs> yeah. So in the example of the the finance uh, uh, 
Canada. We gave them the power to freeze donors' bank accounts, but we hope that they didn't do it. Why? Why did you do that? Yeah. Then? Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's, uh, Olivia in studio, we've got, I think, two clips of you pressing on uh, some of my favorite people on the planet, tow truck drivers. Um, let's go to the first one. Just gonna, I'm just going to push back on that one answer you gave me because I asked you if tow truck drivers uh, it, who would have refused out of sympathy with the protest, as you highlighted in your interview statement, would have been compelled by the emergency measure regulations to serve a cause that they did not agree with, and you, you responded by talking about the necessity of it. But I'm asking you, were those people compelled to serve a cause that they felt went against so, their conscience and their choice of association? So I answered the question by saying... I was not involved in how tow truck drivers or tow truck companies were selected. Uh, I would like to think that there were options to select tow truck drivers who were willing to participate. You'd like to think that, but certainly the power created that opportunity, right? Uh, I was not involved in the selection of tow truck drivers. Okay, I have no further questions. Thank you. What on earth is he talking about there? You know, I, I hope that they would select the ones that wanted to do it. But the point is that you couldn't find ones that wanted to do it. Which also we've seen from other evidence isn't the case. Uh, there were there were tow truck drivers lined up uh, either in Coots or on the other side of the continent in uh, Windsor and in Ottawa before the Emergencies Act was invoked. And we heard that from witnesses from the Ottawa Police Service, from the OPP, and from uh, Minister DeGrand from Alberta. Yeah, we did hear that. I think there was some 30 tow trucks with, I think, seven or nine that were heavy haul tow trucks with the capabilities to pull um, some of these uh, larger trucks and tractor trailers out of location. They had those lined up and ready to go. And I think the OPP testified to that. And I think the OPS also testified to that. And so uh, I don't know how much prep these ministers do before they get here. I would like to think that with an army of government lawyers, they would have been a little bit more prepared. And I don't know if they... They just think that they can rewrite history in real time. But it is true that there were tow trucks lined up, ready to go. They did not need the Emergencies Act for tow trucks in the nation's capital. And they definitely didn't need them in Alberta because Alberta circumvented the whole process, realizing on and around the 10th that they weren't going to get any help whatsoever from the federal government with regard to getting uh, Canadian forces equipment out of the base in Edmonton, which I have been informed uh, by several people, uh, both past and present CAF members, there's a lot of that equipment just sitting there, even though we heard testimony that there was just none to spare. Yeah, and I, I so we uh, one of the big things we learned today was actually that the provinces, uh, other than Alberta, were offered assistance by the federal government to buy their own tow trucks if they wanted to do that, and they refused. In Windsor, the police turned back tow trucks from this, from coming from the United States because they didn't need it. Uh, Superintendent Bernier testified that he was able to look out the window and see tow trucks and that he was satisfied that they were good. So although this may have been a concern at one point, it was resolved before the declaration of emergency, and that's 
that's kind of a running theme that we've been seeing in the evidence. Uh, if you look at Windsor, Windsor was cleared right before uh, the uh, the Emergency Act was invoked. Uh, in Ottawa, they prepared a plan that was just about ready to go right as the Emergency Act was invoked. And uh, in Coots, the police operation that led to arrests, which then convinced the other protesters to leave, happened right before the Emergency Act was invoked. And yesterday, we learned that the uh, at the First Minister's meeting, that was being relayed to the the federal government. They're required to consult with uh, the premiers of the provinces before a declaration of emergency, presumably for this such a purpose so that they can get information about whether it's actually necessary. And uh, across the board, multiple premiers said, our, lo our local law enforcement has got it. Uh, the situation is under control. We're getting the tow trucks we need. Uh, but the federal government went ahead and invoked the, uh, invoked the Emergencies Act anyways. You also pushed back on uh, Omar Al-Gabra or Al-Jabra. I'm not sure how to say it. Um, he said that he was unaware, I think to you, he said he was unaware of the reluctance of tow truck operators to help the convoy, yet were compelled to assist in removing of the blockades. And then he was questioned on whether or not this would violate their charter rights. And we saw the second half of that, but he sort of, the first half of him like, not answering the question, I think, is really important because you ask him, did you did you take any steps or did you were these people even a consideration in all of this? And I think his lack of answer really speaks to the fact that he didn't even see these tow truck operators as individual Canadians with individual rights and individual wills. They were not tools of the state, never once, even though he used a law to make them that way. Why don't we throw to that one, Efron, if and Olivia, if you can find it. And its intention was to protect the charter rights of Canadians? Uh, that is, um, that's our constitution, and we're all sworn to uphold our constitution. Did, uh, do you believe cabinet protected the charter rights of tow truck drivers? We protected, we kept in mind the charter rights of all Canadians, including truck drivers. You'd agree that tow truck drivers weren't protesters themselves, aside from perhaps individual cases? I don't understand the question. Well, so you said in your interview summary that some tow truck drivers refused to tow trucks out of sympathy with the protest, right? Um, I said that, yes, there was a reluctance for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons may be because they might be sympathetic, but the bigger reasons that we heard is that they were fear, uh, afraid for their livelihood and their safety. Okay, so even if they were afraid, why did you make them do it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons <laughs> tow truck drivers may have refused to do something, but presumably that's a choice that they can make. Um, it, and our charter protects the right to freedom of association, which one would hope would include the right to choose who you work for and what work you want to undertake. Yeah, your questions there, it was like a big bear snare. <laughs> he just <laughs> sat there and he just put his leg right in it, didn't he? <laughs> yes, yes, we care about charter rights. Look at us. We're good guys. And then, oh yeah, what about the, the tow truck drivers? And he had no idea what to say. There was like three solid seconds of awkward <laughs> silence there. And I'm so glad you didn't say anything because the silence says more than the words ever could. Um, we've got one more clip from you. Uh, Omar Al-Jabra 
thanked the truckers during the public order commission. He stated that the policies developed over the pandemic were cohesive with the guidance received from public health and from observing the situation on the ground. Uh, Efron, I tagged you in that. Would you mind if you can find that? He needs five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see what else. What else did Omar Al-Jabbar do today? He also said he's not making any apology for doing what he believed to be the best thing for protecting lives. He said our policies were based on the advice and facts and the science that we received, not based on polls or number of protesters. But we know that's not true because they invoked the Emergencies Act because or they revoked the Emergencies Act because they knew they were going to lose in the Senate and they were going to lose the favor of the NDP. So it's interesting to see text messages saying, oh, I think the NDP are going to vote against us. We have to we have to quit invoking the Emergencies Act. And then him, al Jaber testifying that policies were completely based on following the science um, and uh, their advice. Did you find that clip, Efron? Well, Given the motivation of the protesters, did the government consider resuming the exemption for truckers? We don't make public policy based on the number of protesters or emails that we get. We make public policy, particularly during the pandemic. And let me be the first to acknowledge governments around the world, including the federal government, did extraordinary measures in what we believed was the right thing to protect the health and safety of Canadians. I never imagined provinces shutting down businesses. I never imagined provinces invoking curfews. I never imagined the federal government putting limitation on travel. But we all did that. Governments across Canada did these measures because we believed we are saving lives. And yes, they were extraordinary, but I could tell you, no one, at least us, I am not, I'm not making any apology for doing what we believed the best thing for protecting lives. Now, of course, it caused inconvenience. Of course, it caused disruption. And our government did whatever we can to mitigate those disruptions. Uh, and Canadians understood that. Canadians understood that. So back to your question. Our policies were based on the advice and facts and the science that we receive, not based on polls or number of protesters or even the illegal uh, activities that should never, should never drive public policy. So you get different science than the other places in the world. Did you have an opportunity to travel outside of the country? recently, or at least when the mask mandates were still on just Canadian airlines. I went to Geneva with Sarah Miller <laughs> um, and I came back like in 18 hours. But I knew exactly where my gate was in the Geneva airport because those were the only people wearing masks to get onto a Canadian airplane. And that was because of Omar Al-Jabra. And he says he follows the science, but the science seems to change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, only Quebec had a curfew. I'd like to know how many lives that saved. I want to know how many lives masks on airplanes saved. Um, it feels like he was just making it up as he went along to see what he could get away with for as long as he could. 
Yeah, so that uh, his answer there was part of a, uh, a line of questions I was asking him about the role, the actions of other provinces in lifting their restrictions. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a pattern where we, we've seen uh, at least four provinces that took dramatic moves during the protest. And, uh, you know, like, for example, we see in Ontario, uh, Premier Ford didn't want to say Alberta. that that was, a re- uh, yeah, they, they don't want to say that that's in response to the protests. But we also saw a, uh, a read, uh, a summary of a phone call by Premier Ford yesterday, where he was saying the public is at a breaking point. This is, I think it's obvious that the the premiers were responding to the protests. And so then the question is, why couldn't the federal government do the same, especially if, uh, you know, if provinces are going to start allowing a stadium of up to like 500 people to, to, to operate, we can't let truckers who sit alone in their cabs can cross the border without a vaccine. And, uh, uh at the end of the day, Minister Gabra didn't want to uh, acknowledge that the, the the provinces were responding to the protests, and he he maintained that uh, they would they wouldn't listen to the protesters. It's based on the science. And he even uh, there was a comment he said. I think it was shortly after that clip that you played. But he said mm-hmm. that sometimes the sentiments of Canadians and their interests are different, uh, which uh, I think basically just amounts to saying we know better than they do. Exactly. That's exactly how I would interpret that. And it's, uh, it is true that the provinces were reacting. In Alberta, once they started blockading coots, we went from we're going to drop the vaccine passport at the end of the month, to two weeks from now, to the end of the week, to tonight at midnight. <laughs> like, like in the course of one day, that's how quickly it moved up. As the convoy rolled through Saskatchewan, Scott Moe was like, don't convoy me, bro. We're done with the vaccine mandate here, too. It was happening that fast. And ultimately, whether or not you think the science is different or unreliable or whatever, these are Canadians telling you, I'm willing to accept the risk. And isn't that what it comes down to? Is Canadians who are saying, look, you You've told me everything I need to know about COVID. You won't shut up about COVID. But I'm over it and I'm willing to accept the risk. It's like the same thing why people still smoke, even though, even though you put the scary face on the cigarette package. It's People were deciding, I'm willing to accept whatever risk here to go about living my lives again. And certain provinces were making those concessions. And Omar al-Jabbar just, as you say, thought he knew better. Yeah, and th- this is kind of an issue that's been floating in the background of this whole inquiry because the the commission is tasked with investigating the circumstances that led to the declaration of emergency. So there's obviously, and rightly so, been a lot of focus on the protest and the way police handled it and the way the government responded to it and what they knew. But behind all that is the reason the protest happened in the first place. And so... Uh, 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 Antoine Dai for Citizens for Freedom took Ms. Minister Mendicino to that the other day, uh, and uh, you know I tried to take uh, Minister Algabra there now because it's it's an important part of the story that happened here that this protest happened uh, two years after. Uh, uh, two years of lockdowns, two years of vaccine mandates. And actually, we did hear, uh, so before all the witnesses today, there was a summary of all the evidence that the commission had received from the public about what they had to say about their experience with the protest. And it was, it was very divided. It was, uh, there was two complete opposite sides. But one of those sides was saying that it was a relief to have this protest because we had we had felt alienated, we had felt isolated, and suddenly there were people standing side by side, singing the Canadian anthem, waving flags. And that's that's an important part of understanding why all this happened in the first place. 
You know, it's a great part, way to leave this interview with you. Um, we're going to go to an ad so that we can let you leave a little bit le- more gracefully <laughs> than you would if we didn't. Um, Hatim, thanks so much for the great work that you're doing in there. Um, we, I know we at Rebel News pay very close attention to the work that you're doing for the Justice Center and for the rights and freedoms of Canadians. So thanks for working so hard. Thanks for having me on. Great. Roll the ad, please. Freedom in 2022 is certainly about being able to make free choices for ourselves and for our family, who we believe are the best. We have seen so much suffering over the last two years. People who die alone in terrible conditions, people losing dream jobs, polarized families, and a society that insult and yell at each other for making a different medical choice. But people have risen, and it will be through them that the future will have an important meaning for all of you, but especially for the next generation. Ribbon News has been present at every step of this great challenge, but so many other pioneers whom you could meet and hear at our great conference about freedom for our beautiful country, which is Canada. This conference, which will be held in Calgary and Toronto, will show you the faces of the influence of freedom that you have seen over the past two years. You don't want to miss this. So get your ticket now at ribbonnewslive.com. And it will be a pleasure to see you there and meet you in large numbers. It's time to drop these masks and let the truth shine. This week is the most important week from the Public Order Emergency Commission and Trudeau and his ministers responsible for invoking the never-before-seen Emergency Act are testifying. Every night, as soon as all the testimonies end, hang tight and watch our breakdown show where we go through all the highlights of the day with your favorite rebels and special guests such as convoy protesters like Tom Morazzo and their lawyers, Keith Wilson and Eva Chipiak. Go to trepidcommission.com with all of our previous reports are and please go and chip in. Even five bucks is great so that I can get myself an amazing morning coffee. We'll see you there. Well, joining us now is good friend of the rebel, Tom Morazzo. Tom, how's it going? It's good. It's good. I, I had another steak tonight for dinner. <laughs> the yeah, second time I save in another one. five years. <laughs> yes, yes. Go easy, Tom. Go easy. Um, but I'm very happy to see that you're filling yourself up with healthy, reliable animal protein. Um, I wanted to ask it's you. it's Alberta beef. I, yes, even better. Even better. Um, Tom. You're, I think you're described, and I think you describe yourself as a convoy participant. I don't think you've mm-hmm. ever described yourself as an organizer. You were right. more of a logistics guy on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I've been asked, and I think you've been asked too, so this yeah. is a great opportunity to clear this up. You've yeah. been asked why no charges have been brought against you, even yes. though you were prominent in the mm-hmm. convoy. So. I don't think anybody can really ever know why they weren't charged, except maybe they weren't breaking the law. <laughs> but there could yeah, be there yeah. could be other reasons. So I'm going to ask you to speculate why why haven't you been charged? Well, it's it is a great question, uh, and I and I do get this question quite often, and I know Danny Bulford also gets this question quite often, and I think the truth of the matter comes down to this: 
you know, people like myself and Danny Bulford, and then some of the other veterans that went to Ottawa to assist the convoy, we went there because, you know, within our communities, uh, whether you're, you know, currently serving or you're retired or whatever the deal, you're, you're trained to be somebody who does things to organize, to, to just be doers for your community. And, you know, veterans and retired police or active police, active military, they get involved in their communities, in their churches, they do fundraising, they do sports with, with children, they volunteer. And so we, we play an active role. So I think, you know, I, I tried really hard, and I know Danny Bulford as well, tried really hard to develop a strong relationship with the local law enforcement in Ottawa during the time of the convoy. And we were always consistently trying to work with them to make sure that what we were doing was safe and as responsible as, as could be. <clears throat> and I think that was something that was recognized by the local law enforcement. They said, hey, how can we how can we probably target these guys when the entire time they've been working with us to try to make sure like I, I was, you know, it, it was very important to me. I mean, I and I've said this before during the convoy, my own son where he lives in his hometown, went to the hospital in the middle of the night in an ambulance. This is a normal thing in, in my family, okay? So it's a very important thing for me personally. And I wanted to make sure that nobody in the city of Ottawa was ever prevented from going to a hospital or emergency services were ever prevented from getting through. We achieved that. And we heard testimony even during this this inquiry that we actually did do that and for anyone to say otherwise is it's categorically false and we know this and we've talked to the police there was testimony about it this never happened so when we get attacked for example where people say oh you couldn't get to your hospital or you couldn't get to your appointment that's a that's an outright lie and and to be clear there's no hospitals anywhere near where the convoy was uh act actively participating or going on but to get back to the other question you know we we just military and police we naturally work together and so when they knew that we were trying to reciprocate a, a good strong relationship to be safe and responsible i think the police recognized that and said you know what there's there's nothing good that can come of making an example of these specific people right and and what's really frustrating for me is I've been listening to the testimony the last couple of days where they keep saying, you know, military were involved, military involved. And, and what you can tell, it's very clear to me, is there's a narrative, there's a there's a subplot that's being laid out right now. And that's mm -hmm. why they keep bringing out former military, former police. They're, they're angling for this really bizarre... Um, narrative that they've been trying to push forward you know they were talking about military being at coventry it's not true yeah i know the composition of the people that were were there i mean you had electricians millwrights carpenters or construction company mm -hmm. it wasn't being run by military and and here's another thing that i want to say about about military people um there, there's a lot i want to say about it but uh to, to this kind of does get to the root of the matter, I think. I did staff college as an army officer, which means that's brigade level stuff. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of soldiers in a in a battle space space in a military uh, context. You know, anybody who had done staff college 
even maybe a second, third year captain could have easily frustrated the law enforcement agencies in this in the city of ottawa beyond belief like we could have frustrated them at every turn but you want to know the honest truth we knew we could i knew we could i knew it would be easy but i purposely did not i purposely did not take steps to actively frustrate law enforcement because i didn't want them to get to the point where they thought you know if you're going to put me in checkmate every every chance you get that's going to frustrate me and I'm going to invoke something awful. You know, it bought us three and a half weeks, you know, but really it would have been extremely easy for us to do that. And we all knew it, but we just chose not to do it. We chose a nonviolent path at every, every opportunity we had. That's not what we were there to do. You know, and if you, if you look at the, the military that started to congregate there, we're talking about, you know, people that later on have gone and joined an organization, um, some of us started called Veterans for Freedom. And this came out after the convoy. Veterans for Freedom was after the convoy. But we all met at the convoy, and we've grown over a 1,000 people in this organization, and it grows every day. And we've got some very talented, very skilled uh, people that understand military operations, intelligence, you know, how to gather it, how to consume it, how to, you know, take steps to protect themselves in case there's other people out there that that don't like the fact that you're active or that you have information. You know, they, they, they're kind of framing this narrative, right? We understand how that game is played. And, and we're not fools. I mean, obviously, we, we prepare for those kinds of stupid eventualities, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is, Veterans for Freedom and everybody that went to Ottawa, we have so many veterans involved that were given methylquine, that trusted the yeah. government, trusted the military, and now there's lawsuits going on. Even Romeo Dallaire is part of the class yeah, action and then lawsuit. We gave them, by, the way, by the way, then we gave them Moderna. So we gave, yes. the, <laughs> we gave them all, like the entire military, if, if they received yeah. the vaccine, they were inoculated with Moderna. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's revealed that Moderna is going to give exactly that demographic of people myocarditis. Yes. yes. And then, you know, to, to top it all off, like we, you know, we, we have all these, these amazing soldiers. And even during the time uh, when they, the, the height of the mandates, you know, we found out uh, through Veterans for Freedom, like the community was talking, we found out that in places like Petawawa and Edmonton, if you were not vaccinated, you are being put in the pipeline for a 5F uh, release from the military. You're being kicked out. Yes. And these are combat veterans being kicked out. And they made those soldiers in the wintertime last year stand out in modular tents. And in Edmonton, they were making them wear their DEUs, their dress uniforms. And then they took away the heaters. It's blatant harassment. And I think anybody who was involved in those decisions or in that chain of command that was forcing their unvaccinated soldiers to stand out in the in the cold winter in a tent and not allow them inside the building with vaccinated soldiers, that is disgusting. That is absolutely disloyal, disgusting, unbecoming behavior of any commanding officer of a unit that would do that to their to their soldiers. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, that to me is is something that they should be brought up on charges and relieved of command. But you know, the, the organization has grown uh, exponentially, and we're, we we work with lawyers all the time. We're trying to assist uh, Canadian Forces members in their fight 
to be kicked out of the military. So we work with lawyers. We talk to lawyers all the time, not just the ones here for the commission, but there's a phenomenal lawyer out in um, Alberta uh, that we've been working with. She's been suing the government for, for all these COVID restrictions for quite some time on behalf of soldiers, right? And so when I listened today to the Minister of National Defense uh, get up on there and, and, and talk today, a lot of this these memories had been coming back. Like, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, veterans got involved, it was because of the deliberate steps of the federal government who mandated a forced medical experiment against their own people again, again. And a again. lot of people push back. A lot of people push back. And said no. And so their their reaction was to take uh, punitive steps. So now you're looking at soldiers that, I, I, for example, one highly trained uh, helicopter pilot who's a member of, of V4F. To get her a pension, you got to have 25 years. He had over 21 years. And now he's being forced out. Forfeiture of a, of a pension, no more benefits for the rest of his life. Why? Why? Because the Canadian military failed to respect informed consent or bodily autonomy on something that has not yet passed phase three clinical trials and is under an interim order. So, you know, we I, just listening to the Minister of National Defense today, it, it sickens me. It absolutely sickens me to to listen to the, the demeanor, the attitude. But I will say, I, I'll give her a couple of points on some of the things that I believe were in alignment with with you know, what happened during the convoy, which kind of goes back to the original point of your question, and maybe is why didn't you get charged, which was because there was, you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying to complete the circle here, and I might have, I may have turned it into a, a, a Pentagon, I'm sorry. You took the long way. You took the took long the, way around. The, <laughs> 60% chance of getting there, uh, if you ask the OPP. Yeah. Um, so so the, the issue really is... Um, now I lost my train of thought. That's okay. Uh, maybe I'll come back to it. I'll let, I'll well, let my co-host well, say something. Speaking <laughs> of Anita Anand, speaking of the uh, defense minister, uh, I'd like to throw to clip seven, if we can get that going. And that was when um, she comments on Minister Lametti and Minister Mendicino's those text messages where they're joking about bringing in a tank yeah. into Ottawa. Okay, so, let's stop here. Maybe we can find my tweet. It might even be my <laughs> twin, my pin tweet. Uh and I do, I have quit using the word snake in my tweets. I've used the shorthand of just a snake emoji because yeah. it's snake week down at the Public Order Emergency Commission. Mm-hmm. These two snakes, the justice minister and the public safety minister, they say it's a joke. But even if it were a joke, it, there's the snake emojis. Uh, we've got David Lametti and Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister. These yeah. two snakes, maniacs, wouldn't give Alberta CAF heavy haul equipment, which you we know is stationed at CFB Edmonton. Anand said, oh, maybe there wasn't enough equipment to give them. What? They just needed it for an afternoon. But that we know that's not true. You can go to the base and look at it right now. You could just go look at the equipment. It's there. I'm from the area. We see it driving around all the time. It goes between Wainwright and Edmonton constantly. But anyways, these two snakes, um, they won't give Alberta heavy haul equipment from the CAF, but they were going to deploy tanks or joked about it, whatever you 
however you read this, but I think it's atrocious to joke about doing the old maple syrup Tiananmen Square treatment in Ottawa. Um, They were going to deploy tanks as early as February 2nd to deal with the traffic snarl in Ottawa. Um, One of them says you need to get the police to move. I don't think that they can do that. You're not supposed to direct the police government and the CAF if necessary. Too many people are being seriously adversely impacted by what is an occupation. I'm getting out as soon as I can. So he's not even sticking around to put up with it. He's like, the the traffic's bad. I'm going to Montreal. Um, And then he continues to say, people are looking to us, you, for leadership and not stupid people. Now, I'm not sure. um, I I think he's calling Mark Carney stupid and possibly Catherine McKenna. I think Kath is Catherine McKenna, who is an Ottawa resident. But I, I'm not sure. I mean, naturally, when somebody <laughs> says there's a, a not a very smart Catherine around, I'm just going to assume it's her. And then he says, my team. And then um, to it, the other um, ghoul responds, how many tanks are you asking for? I just want to ask Anita how many we've got on hand. And he says, I reckon one will do. Now, maybe they're serious. Maybe they're not. After, I mean, they invoked the Emergencies Act, which, which would allow them to do these things. So... Mm-hmm. To say chalk this up as a joke, I mean, you literally just invoked the Emergencies Act, so I'm not sure you were joking. But even if you were, I'm not sure I want two ministers of the crown joking about having their own little Tiananmen Square in Ottawa because they don't like the bouncy castles. Yeah, I, I never took that uh, that text to be a joke at all. Uh, I'm, no. There's just there's no tone of a of a joke within that. I think that they were doing actually serious staff checks with each other like is this something possible yeah. as early as february 2nd right yeah that is that's a little bit um that's like you, you three can, four days into the convoy they're like you know yeah. we should probably tank man these people mm-hmm. yeah and and i i i read that and i'm sorry but i i i see where their mind automatically went and celine and i were sitting in the audience and and i think um around four o'clock ish. I, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. I could not take uh, the, the uh, extreme arrogance uh, that just evaporates off of the attorney general. And mm-hmm. uh, to, to see some of the comments was unbelievably frustrating and, and disturbing to, to, to hear him again, again, just like we talked about with Mendocino yesterday, like, is he talking about Canadians or is yeah. he talking about the Taliban? I can't tell. I think he yeah, talked more politely about the Taliban. Yeah, there are brothers, if you ask uh, that yeah. not very yeah. bright lady who used to be the MP in Peterborough, whose name escapes mm-hmm. me right now. But thank God she's no longer an MP. She called them her brothers. Um, yes. But, you know, it is true. That has been one of the re- reoccurring themes here, that our fellow Canadians who took to our nation's capital to protest because no one would listen to them for two years. They left their lives behind and drove all the way to the nation's capital to protest in the middle of winter. And they are treated like foreign invaders instead of just Canadians who have a right to be there like everybody else, who might be a little rough around the edges, but that's how I am too. So I don't care. But that's how they're treated. Like they're just treated like they're, they may, they're like, the Mongolian hordes coming into China and we need to build a wall to keep them out in perpetuity. That's how they're being treated. And I find it just so offensive and I don't like to be offended by anything because that means you can't keep control of your emotions, but that really, really bothers me. Um, Sorry, Celine, I took this over from you and you were throwing to 
clip seven, I think. Sorry. <laughs> I'll shut up. I'll shut up. No, you're good. You're good. That was made in jest. Second, I have already provided my comments relating to the fact that the Canadian Armed Forces is the force of last resort. Therefore, we were not considering deploying tanks in any number. And uh, Minister Lametti earlier on in testimony to this commission wrote the exchange off as a joke between friends. Do you think this is a joke? I, I take no part of my role as Minister of National Defence uh, as something unjust, obviously. I am very concerned and was very concerned, not only about the situation in Canada, but about the global strategic situation that we all find ourselves in. And so I am uh, very concerned to make sure that we are uh, making decisions uh, with full information. And I know that's the case with Minister Lametti, as well as uh, the other colleagues around the table. This was a very uh, difficult time, and we were all doing our very best in our respective portfolios. Right. Um, but at the same time, on February 2nd, just a few days after the arrival of the protesters in Ottawa, this was the sort of joke that was considered funny among your cabinet colleagues, wasn't it? I was actually not in Canada at the time. I was in Europe, as previously uh, indicated, trying to launch Canada's response uh, to a potential further invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I will say that I know that my colleagues take their work extremely seriously. Does cabinet uh, solidarity require you to find this joke funny? I'm sorry, that was a little frivolous. I loved there it. Was one other part, yeah. There was one other part of that exchange where Kittredge says, that's Kittredge with the JCCF for mm -hmm. those of you at home. Rob Kittredge, yeah. Um, Rob Kittredge, and he says, do you agree with Lametti that just one tank would have been enough to deal with the Canadians gathered in their nation's capital to express their discontent with the government? And she says, oh, it wasn't just. And then he asked, was this the kind of joke that your cabinet colleagues found funny? And then she says, well, we take our job seriously. So she's saying, like, literally in the same breath, it was a joke, but this is no joke. So which one is it, lady? Are you joking about running over Canadians or are you serious about running over Canadians? Both are bad. Both are bad. Just pick one, please. Well, I mean, in truth, she she hasn't she hasn't necessarily been operationally focused, especially if uh, she has allowed the prime minister and, you know, the rest of the cabinet to systematically eject Canadian forces members who are fully trained and uh, will not partake in uh, the violation of informed consent. And yet now they're critically short in the middle of a yeah. situation that they're facing overseas, right? So that's an interesting thing. But, you know, in, a lot, I listened to her testimony quite closely today, and uh, she had rehearsed, she had rehearsed quite a lot of, um, a lot of talking points. So when Rob asked those questions, she was actually regurgitating a talking point, uh, almost verbatim of what she had previously stated 
early on. Yeah, I just want to actually include something in there because I wasn't even the only person that openly exclaimed this in the audience. It's like I'm explaining this like I'm watching a circus and it feels like that at this point. But she literally had her phone in one hand and she was just scrolling and you could just see her eyes darting back and forth. And and um, there was only a couple times where you could tell that her answers actually weren't that put together. And that's actually the only times that she didn't have her phone in her hand. Yeah, she was so, very scripted in her responses 100%. And um, I don't know, that's, that's tough to watch because it just shows me like, there's no fairness. I would assume that phones usually wouldn't be allowed in court proceedings. If you're up on the stand, giving a a testimony, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like taking a test and you have notes, I get it, but you're not allowed to bring your phone with you. Yeah. So I don't care if you have notes or who needs a phone when you can just say, I don't think that question's relevant. So I'm not answering it. (laughs) She did to the government of Alberta lawyer. Like, what the hell yeah. is going on here? Can you yeah. do that? I guess so, because she did. Yeah, it, it was it was really difficult to watch that exchange. And I have to say, I think that's the best cross that I've seen uh, from Rob Kittredge. Like, he was right yep. on the money with that cross exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way he was making the eye contact uh, in a very assertive way, you could tell she was highly uncomfortable with uh, the the question itself. And she couldn't answer the question from her own words. She had to revert to talking points because she was very nervous about the answer she was about to give because they knew that they got caught. They tried to brush it off like a joke, but everybody in the room knew that it wasn't a joke. It was a staff check to see if they could actually pull off what what was being suggested. Well, you know what? Speaking of a really good cross from Rob Kittredge, I don't think that we have the clip actually lined up, but when he asked her uh, more or less to agree or disagree with the fact that if she didn't support the invocation, uh, the the invocation of the Emergencies Act, then she more or less would have to voluntarily step down from her position Cab- as minister. Cabinet solidarity. So exactly. that, that con- extremely yeah, that concept important. is called cabinet solidarity. So not only have they not waived cabinet confidence, which means the communications which ministers are pri- privileged and no one will hear about them, but cabinet solidarity has not been waived either, which means that you can't break ranks with cabinet. And if you do, you sort of have to voluntarily step down from your role. And I think yeah. Anita Anand likes being a female defense leader. It makes yeah. her, you know, she's checking a lot of um, social justice boxes yeah. by being oh, there. It certainly is. Like, I, I, yeah. I'd like to know how she's qualified to do that job. And I'll give you an example why. Um, the last minister <laughs> of national defense, uh, was actually a reserve lieutenant colonel in you know infantry reserve uh, soldier who had multiple overseas deployments and he was also a police officer mm-hmm. in in his right. his former career. But inside Justin Trudeau's uh, own party, you've got a member of parliament. His name is Andrew Leslie. He was the commander of the Canadian Army. So how is yeah. it that Andrew Leslie is just basically this guy with, with hardly any portfolio at all, and she is now running the military when her focus is to put pronouns on people's signature blocks uh, in their emails, as opposed to making sure that Canada has a fighting force that is ready to meet you know international challenges in terms of defense. She's not. She can't even talk her way through a, a public inquiry without talking points. Well, it goes without saying that this is Justin Drew, yeah. Justin Trudeau's Canada. And um, even if she did or didn't disagree, I kind of, I, I have the suspicion, I have intuition, if if I may just say, um, that not all the ministers obviously 
fully agreed. Actually, it was revealed that during her statement, she didn't even specify if she agreed with the invocation of the Emergency Act. Of course, that changed today. She claimed, but yeah, yeah. 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 So I, um, I, I, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was I was just going to touch on Leslie for a second there. Sure. In fairness, Andrew Leslie was unelected in 2019 um, after he announced that he would support uh, Vice Admiral Norman's. Yeah, uh, he would testify for the defense in that breach mm -hmm. of trust trial. So yeah. he was uh, turfed. I turfed thought I saw him the sitting in the audience. I, I could have swore I saw him sitting in the audience recently when that one uh, liberal MP passed out. Remember, two weeks ago she passed out in uh, the Commons. Oh, he could have been. He could I have he been. Was he was there right in front of her. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But I would of course, hey, you know, the admiral <laughs> was actually vindicated. Uh, he beat mm -hmm. those uh, those allegations mm. uh, and was offered a full reinstatement. But I think he took his retirement. And by the way, many yes. many members of the Canadian military uh, helped the admiral. A crowdfund for his legal defense, which he won, and then turn around and reimbursed or offered reimbursement to all the, the soldiers, airmen, and sailors that supported his legal defense. He asked them if they would like to be reimbursed or where their money would he'd like to uh, donate it, mm. right? But this is somebody who Justin Trudeau took off the chessboard in the Canadian military. Why? because of another ethics deal involving ships and Justin Trudeau's friends mm -hmm. and he won. Yeah. But, you know, to, um, to, to kind of uh, circle back to my, the original question, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I thought I'd, I'd take the long way around. Keith Wilson <laughs> yeah. was navigating. Oh, yeah. I took the long way around. Uh, and this is the important point. <laughs> if the emergencies, if the commission comes back and says, Hey, uh, the emergency act was was necessary it was if if the commission comes back and says yeah it's valid it, it should have been invoked uh there's a good chance i could still be charged and i'm not the only one there's a yeah. possibility right uh and and this is a this is a, a i think a valid concern of mine and some of the others like danny i i would assume i haven't talked to danny but oh, for sure. if they come back and say yeah the emergency act was warranted next thing you know Tom and Danny and other people are going to get paraded around this country like public enemy number one. Why? Because they've got to put a cherry on top of their big heap of crap right. cake. And so, right. you know, obviously we're not stupid. We've been preparing for this for quite some time. We're mm -hmm. not going to go down without a fight. We're, we're aware of the play. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not overly worried. I mean, it's a, it's a long shot, but you know, we know what we're doing. Um, we play the long game just as much as other other opponents, right? This is what the government has trained us to do. So I'm not really worried about it overall. I'll cover yeah. your trial like it's the OJ trial. Perfect. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll take turns. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, is it gonna happen? No, it's I don't think it's gonna happen, but is it inside the realm of uh, possibility with this current government that mm -hmm. nobody even recognizes as as left, right, center, anything. It's just its own government beast on its own. It doesn't fit into a political spectrum. They're just doing uh, their own in thing. this century. Yeah. In this century, maybe you know, uh, eighty years past, it might fit into a, a government model of the past. Uh, but uh, you know, I nothing would surprise only, me. I think the only the only ideology the only ideology mm -hmm. is power at all costs. Whatever yeah, that and, looks like. 
They don't and care. Well, it's it's done through it's done through talking points and media in in narrative. Um, that's yeah. the most effective tool, you know. And during during the um, during the convoy, I had made mention actually on a I think the final live stream event that I had done on the nineteenth, and I mentioned, you know, Justin Trudeau, you just got your your Tiananmen Square moment. If that's what you wanted. Yeah, you, you just did. got the moment. Uh, and and now there we find out that they were actually joking about it, making reference to it, joking. If they about were it. joking. If yeah, if it if was actually, joking. yeah, they weren't joking. They weren't joking. Now, uh, I think it is nine seventeen where you guys are at. It's been a very long day for you, and I know that there's a case of beer that I bought sitting in the fridge for you guys to drink <laughs> after a very long day. Yeah. Um, so I want to thank you guys for the hard work that you're putting in in uh, the commission, Tom. I know this is uh, probably difficult for you to relive at it some is. points. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, what, Celine, what frustrates um, me, sorry, what frustrates me is that six weeks ago, we heard all these, this testimony from Lamenti and, and Mendocino that was proven false six weeks ago, yeah. but they're still talking about it like it's fact. Yeah. Surprise. They're, it's Canadian very government. <laughs> they're gaslighting us. They think we're all hard mm -hmm. of remembering. Anyway, I was trying to wrap up the stream Sorry. so that you guys could go and have a beer. Um, so I will let you go, Celine. Thank you. You've got a very busy day tomorrow. We've got PMO staffers yes. and and uh, Christian Freeland. So mm -hmm. very busy uh, day full of lies, I imagine. Um, a lot of turd polishing, I bet, going on tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and Tom, I'm sure you're going to be sitting there. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you cough. Um, and I know you're fighting uh, a bit of a bug this whole time. And you're in the, you know, you're in the audience just as much as our team is. And you're, I mean, I think at this point, we just consider you part of the crew. Um, you come Perfect. to the live stream probably four nights out of five. So thanks for doing that. Um, Anytime. I, I look forward to seeing what is going on tomorrow. I may or may not be the lead journalist. I bet I'm going to get roped into it. So that's okay too, because I get to talk to you guys. Uh, thanks to everybody behind the board there in the Airbnb. Thanks to everybody in the studio in Toronto who's also working hard. Efron, Olivia, I know you're there. Um, thanks to everybody who tunes in every week um, and every night, by the way, to... Uh, watch the breakdown. We know that you're looking to us to give you truthful analysis because we are not politically contaminated by Justin Trudeau's money. So I appreciate the trust that you put in us. And as David Menzies always says, stay sane. Freedom in the year 2022 for me, folks, it means the return of Rebel Live. Now, Rebel Live is an annual event we used to put on before the man, or was it the COVID Karen, made us shut it down during the pandemic years. It is a freedom fun fest, if you will. All the freedom fighters you've grown to know and love over the years, they're going to be speaking at the Toronto and Calgary events. The Toronto event is on November 19th. That's a Saturday. And it will feature the likes of Dr. Julie Panessi, Archer Pawlowski, Tamara Leach, and all your favorite rebels, including yours truly, I'll be the MC that day, Sheila Gunn-Reed, and of course, the big boss man himself, Ezra Levant. Now Saturday, November the 26th, we're bringing Rebel Live to Calgary, and uh, those aforementioned speakers will be there, and Sheila will be the MC for that event. You don't want to miss it. It's an all-day 
Freedom Fest. I know there are certain would-be conservative leaders that think freedom is overrated. You know we don't think that way. I don't think you think that way. So if you want to get a ticket, please go to the website. They are going fast. Go to rebelnewslive.com. That's rebelnewslive.com. Get your orders in. And as Billy Redlines used to say, folks, don't you dare miss it. Don't you dare miss this one. 